Greetings, folks, and welcome to The Eclectic Humanist, Episode 11. This week, I think I'd like to continue our exploration of the rise of fundamentalism, particularly in American politics, by looking at a handful of episodes spanning the Cold War and giving some thought to the way political and religious discourses combined, particularly in the U.S., to form a sense of national identity opposed to international communism. Don't worry, we're not leaving the reaction to the scientific revolution behind. It'll come up again. But right now, we need to consider not just scientific discourse, but also political discourse in the context of things to which particularly the conservative white evangelical Christian community was responding. Now, to be perfectly clear, this is a really complex topic whose full range I can't hope to cover in a one-hour podcast. So what I'm offering here is simply one interpretation of events as I understand them. It's not authoritative. It's simply meant to provoke thought. I think an important part of intellectual honesty is admitting one's limitations. And though this area of history has been a lifelong fascination of mine, and one to which I've been fairly closely attuned my entire adult life, I can't pretend to have anything like a final word on it. These are just thoughts on history as I understand it, and in some cases perhaps as I remember it, in a context that I think is relevant to the particular moment we're all living through together right now. But before we get to right now, we have to look back a ways, and as a starting place, I've decided on the beginning of the Cold War. There are any number of other places where I could have begun, and several of them might actually have even made better sense. But I think the time span of the Cold War gives us a chunk that we can handle reasonably well, and this time span is definitely relevant to the spread of the infection of fundamentalism in North American, and particularly American, Christianity and politics. But why is that? Last episode, we talked a little bit about the fundamentalist assertion, claim, lie, quite frankly, that the United States is founded upon Christian principles, and more specifically, even upon biblical principles. That is, we looked at the beginning of the reinterpretation of the United States from the first modern secular state to the narrative of the Christian nation that we're all so familiar with today. Well, that narrative, that narrative building went into overdrive during the early years of the Cold War, and there are particular reasons for that. If I wanted to sum those reasons up in two words, it would be with the common phrase, Godless communism, Godless communism, communism, communism. That is, Marx, of course, was an atheist. And communism, of course, is a non-theistic worldview. While there are lots of non-theistic worldviews out there, what is it that made communism so scary, particularly to American Christians? And at least part of the answer to that question is that communism doesn't just attack one popular American religion. It attacks two. It also attacks the religion of private property. And if you wanted to pick two ideologies that more than any others consistently underpin much of the modern West, those ideologies are Christianity and capitalism. It was largely capitalism, for example, that provided the impetus for the colonial impulse coming out of Europe, without which there would not be European-founded civilizations in North or South America. 
But it was Christianity that provided the cover, the, the ideological cover, the excuse for completely decimating First Nations cultures all over the world in the name of saving their souls. That is, the two ideologies have been useful tools to each other in spreading their agendas for centuries now. Well, communism is a threat to both. And from 1949 onward, communism wasn't just a threat to both. It was a nuclear-armed threat, and one understood to be locked in a death struggle with the West. That is, communism is also, much like Christianity and capitalism, a totalizing ideology. It's an ideology that draws absolute categories, that paints the world in a map tinted by the colors of its own values, and is only willing to read the world, at least in its most fundamentalist or purist incarnations, in those shades. Moreover, I think another reason why communism is such an ideological threat to the West is that it's actually very familiar in its narrative structure. If you read the Communist Manifesto, if you read Das Kapital, what you see is effectively the apocalyptic Christian narrative transposed from a spiritual to an economic framework, rather than the fall in the garden, the separation from God through willful disobedience. We have the arising of class divisions, the separation of the workers on the one hand who produce, and the owners on the other hand who control the means of production. There's still a fracture, and the fracture is still with that thing against which one measures one's value. It's just an economic rather than a spiritual fracture. And again, uh, if you can just read this in the Communist Manifesto, it's a lot shorter than Das Kapital, the general narrative, the general myth, because that's what it is, is one of ongoing decline as that separation becomes more and more profound. And as people are systematically alienated more and more from their actual work and the fruits of their work. And speaking of fruit, communism as articulated in, in Marx effectively treats the notion of private property as that damned apple from the tree of knowledge. The thing, the one thing that initiated the ongoing fall. And in late-stage capitalism, which is where we are now, I can actually see quite a lot of merit to that position as the alienation of the person from work, from the products of work, from the processes that control work, has become so much more complex and persistent and ingrained than it was during Marx's own time. And the separation itself can only be healed by workers taking the means of production into their own hands and establishing, ultimately, a world with no government, no state, but simply a world of universally equal workers, where there's no place for the management class. Well, this is paradise restored. This is the communist salvation narrative. Marx, who knew the Judeo-Christian mythic arc very well, simply, well, not simply, he did other things too, but he did transpose that mythic arc, which is one of the most powerful myths in the Western consciousness, into economic terms. And that's, that's one of the places where communism gets much of its ideological power. It appeals to many of the same psychological mechanisms that religion appeals to, that particularly Christianity appeals to. It appeals to 
the sense of having fallen, a sense that's already implanted in Western consciousness by the mythic narrative of, of Christianity. It appeals to the need and the desire to be saved, something else that Christianity has implanted in Western consciousness. And it appeals to a teleology. It puts humanity, very much as Christianity does, on an ultimately upward trajectory. We're moving towards something. The difference is, economics are demonstrably real, or at least the means of production are demonstrably real, and all relationships do seem to have an economic component. So what communism does, among other things, and it's not the only ideology that does this, is it takes that religious impulse and simply puts it in sociopolitical terms. Free market capitalism does much the same thing. If you listen to a really devout libertarian capitalist, and I do mean devout, well, the market will fix everything. The market has the power to fix everything if we just let the market do its work. So that, that poison of religious thinking that we get from our religious traditions is still present in a lot of our socio-political ideologies. And as I said, this is one of the reasons why communism poses not just a political threat, but an ideological threat to the dominant thought systems in the West. So how did the West respond to these threats? Well, the West is a little too big to tackle all at once. The most intense reaction obviously came from the most conservative elements. And in the United States, one of the words that sums up that reaction is McCarthyism. That is, during the period of the McCarthy hearings, what was effectively enforced was a form of ideological purity, which actually mirrored the drive toward ideological purity that was also being enforced on the other side of that divide in the USSR. This marks one of the most conformist periods in American cultural history. Maybe the most conformist period. I actually probably think that's true. Where voices coming from the political left were effectively silenced for years. And in all honesty, the United States has not had a genuine political left since then. Not at the level of politics and policy. Even someone like Bernie Sanders, who is of course reviled by Republicans as being a socialist, is really a social democrat. He's, he's an FDR-style social democrat. Another way that American society responded to this ideological threat of, of godless communism was, and you still encounter this all the time today in certain intellectually challenged corners of the internet, to equate communism with atheism. This, of course, is a category error, but it carries a lot of political weight. And a couple of changes that we see happening in the United States in the mid-1950s, which may seem like small things, are actually quite significant. Because, again, it's narrative building. It's, it's, it's reinterpreting what American history, what the United States actually is, what the American state actually is. The first, or at least the first I want to address, happened in 1954 where the Pledge of Allegiance was officially changed to incorporate a religious element that is actually, I would say, at odds with the Constitution, at least most definitely at odds with the intentions of the founders of the American Republic, who scrupulously constructed a very secular Constitution. The phrase, one nation indivisible, was rewritten as one nation under God indivisible. And this is something that children are expected to recite every day at school as, as part of their cultural indoctrination. 
And then I would say even more significant, in 1956, the motto on American money, which had been a pluribus unum, from many, one, which is a wonderful slogan, was changed to In God We Trust. And this is now so deeply ingrained in cultural consciousness of the American religious right that they actually appeal to In God We Trust on the money as if it is a historical precedent, as if it is a historical authority, rather than a Cold War anti-communist innovation. The cause for it is lost. The presence of it remains. And the presence of it continues to have cultural power. But that was the 1950s. And during the 1950s, though fundamentalist Christianity continued to spread, it was not a politically important force. Many evangelicals saw, saw themselves as being, oh, well, the common phrase is, in the world but not of the world. And they were not at that time the almost unified voting bloc that they've since become. And insofar as that's true, I honestly don't have a problem with fundamentalist religion. Keep it out of politics, your beliefs are your own business. There did, of course, continue to be opposition to teaching evolution in the schools, and we'll get back to that before too long, but nothing as high profile as the 1925 Scopes Monkey Trial. So what happened to galvanize and unify the Christian fundamentalists of the 1950s into what by the 1970s had come to be known as the religious right? And as with anything that I'm tackling in this episode, the answer is very complex, or the answers are very complex, and I can only touch upon a few elements. One is the change in popular culture that took place during the 1950s, and particularly during the 1960s. The development of rock and roll music was condemned from many a fundamentalist pulpit, from many a pulpit, period, often seen as the devil's music, as as promoting sexual lasciviousness. And, well, you know, I can see that because to rock and roll means to fuck. So what the term actually means is music to fuck by. Now, I've got no problem with that, but many a pastor and many a parent did. And if you go on to YouTube, you won't find it hard to locate old clips of mass record burnings, rock and roll record burnings, often staged in front of churches in glorious black and white that remind me of other burnings also often staged at night with concerns over purity of one kind or another. There's also a racial element in the opposition to rock and roll, and this is bound up also in American white Christianity because, of course, the foundational styles of music that go into making up rock and roll come out of the African-American community. And this is at a time when the debate over segregation is reaching its height, and the civil rights movement is really, really getting, uh, getting up steam. Brown versus Board of Education was 1955. That's the decision that, that eliminated segregation, at least legally, in the United States. Sorry, the decision that eliminated school segregation. So when we talk about religion at this time, we also necessarily are talking about race. Both white and black Americans congregated in their churches to wage the conflict over segregation, over civil rights. And rock and roll is not unique in having a very sexual name. The word boogie means to have sex, and the term boogie-woogie refers to syphilis. This was slang in the brothels of, of the Mississippi Delta in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, but onward. One bit of common ground here that we have, though, with the fight over segregation, 
of which I'll be talking in future episodes, and the Cold War, the struggle against international communism, and concerns over fornication, is a desperate concern with racial purity, with ideological purity as well. Again, these two things are bound up together. The early 1950s in particular are the golden age of ideological purity. That's the McCarthyism period. And even after McCarthyism was done, the threat of, of communist infiltration, which predated the Second World War, this was a, a major topic of social debate in the 1930s, continued to haunt the culture at the time. Now to throw in another factor here is the significant proxy wars in which the United States became involved in its battle against the communist menace. First the Korean War, which ended in 1953, and of course then Vietnam, which the United States got formally involved in in 1965 and pulled out in, I believe, 1975. That is, these are, these are ideological wars. The Cold War is a period of ideological warfare. What this means is not just that fighting for an ideal or fighting for an ideology is simply expected. It also signifies the weaponization of ideologies themselves. And insofar as the American rhetoric since the 1950s at least had been in God we trust and one nation under God, that is, standing up against godless communism, the more deeply entrenched, the more involved the United States got in these ideological wars, the more Christianity became associated with the identity for which they were fighting, particularly conservative Christianity. But I don't think that is what pushed or pulled American evangelicals en masse into the realm of active right-wing politics. Because there's one cause, a major cause, that we haven't addressed yet. And this, of course, is the sexual revolution. And let's make it two causes, actually, because we also need to throw feminism in there, the development of the women's movement. And of course, there's no place where these two factors overlap more closely than in the debate over abortion. So let's start in 1961. This is the year that the birth control pill came into common use in the U.S., and this effectively set off what we call the sexual revolution. The effect of the pill, as many other people have pointed out before, was simply this. It set women free to choose whether and when they wanted to have children. That is, it set them free from the prison of biology that had up till now, prevented many from pursuing life paths other than marriage and motherhood. Or to put it another way, it brought them closer to being on a level playing field with men where sex was concerned. And of course, as the 1960s progressed, probably the most turbulent decade in American politics, with the exception of the one we're just kicking off now, and of course, over the course of the 1960s, Many of what had seemed to be stable, traditional foundations of American society came increasingly under question. It became easier as the 1960s and moving into the 1970s went on for women, for example, to move into the world of employment, not yet on an equal footing with men, but at least on a footing. And as women became more free in their choices of whether and when to have children, what to do about work, the divorce rate went up. Now, I don't say that as a bad thing. I actually see it as a good thing. Women not being trapped in loveless and often abusive marriages is a step in the right direction. 
So while the religious right speaks of the disintegration of the traditional family as if it were some catastrophe, all it really is is a sign that women are no longer prisoners of their husbands. Well, there's more to it than that, but that's a big part of it. But for the conservative mind, for the conservative mindset, now the word conservative obviously means trying to keep things the same. The 60s were a rough decade, man. They really, really were. The stability of marriage came into question. The trust that one could place in the government came into question thanks to the disastrous and immoral misadventure in Vietnam. That is, by decade's end, the stability, the certainty, the old certainties of the 1950s, especially of the early 1950s, the certainties for which the baby boomers' parents' generation had fought and, and thought they deserved were falling apart as younger people, and particularly women, rejected the standards that had traditionally been imposed upon them. I mean, hell, I remember as a kid in the 1970s, answering the phone and having somebody ask to speak to the man of the house. And of course, the sexual revolution also brought in the age of so-called free love, the notion that you could have sex with whomever you felt like having sex with as long as they also wanted to have sex with you. Great. As far as I'm concerned, that's a good thing. But again, it challenged the older notions of so-called sexual morality. And whenever you get into questions of sexual morality, particularly of restrictive sexual morality, you are almost always talking religion. But the one event more than any other that drove the fundamentalists and evangelicals toward becoming the political force known as the religious right was, of course, the 1973 Roe v. Wade decision, which continues to be one of the key political issues in American politics to this day, and almost exclusively for religious reasons. Now, the rationale for Roe v. Wade, just to have that out in the open, is fairly simple, to be honest. That is, the Supreme Court decided, or maybe recognized is a better word, that the Fourth Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, the amendment protecting against unreasonable search and seizure, applies where medical procedures are concerned. That is, it's not the government's business what medical procedure a person, and in this case a woman, chooses to undergo. Now, insofar as abortion is a medical procedure, the government has no business restricting that. Now, of course, there are limitations on when a woman can have an abortion. It's very difficult, for example, to get a third trimester abortion. And to be honest, this is probably not a major restriction because by the third trimester, the woman would have decided whether or not she wanted to have a baby. It's very unusual to have a complete reversal of position that late in a pregnancy. I'm not saying it doesn't happen. I, I'm not in a position to make those absolute claims. But abortions tend to be performed, tend to be sought earlier on in a pregnancy. When a late-term abortion is performed, it is almost always for medical reasons, particularly for life-saving reasons where the mother is concerned. As I said, it's a medical procedure. I'm not going to say too much more about that right now. I have more research I want to do, and fairly soon, I do plan on doing an episode on abortion. So that's coming up at some time. In any case, the timing of Roe v. Wade is probably also significant. 1973 was the year of the oil crisis. It was the year the steadily ascending 
American economy entered a major period of, of decline, of challenge. And since then, real wages, that is wages as measured against cost of living, have been in steady decline. So 1973 really marks the high point of, of American prosperity. If you refer to the vast majority of people, to working people, rather than to the ultra-rich, who of course continue to do just fine. I bring this up because one of the factors that predicts religiosity is economic hardship. People tend to reach for religion, to reach for the comforts of religion, when they're experiencing real-world hardship. That is, societies marked by economic destitution are more likely to be religious than societies marked by general prosperity. Similarly, periods of uncertainty or instability tend to be periods when people reach for the certainty, the stability of religion. This is largely what's behind the retreat into fundamentalist religion as the scientific revolution gradually demolishes the old certainties with better evidence, better arguments, and demonstrations that things as described in sacred texts simply could not have happened the way they were told. Well, by the time we reach 1973, we're entering a period of not only economic hardship, but economic uncertainty. More and more people are out of work. And at the same time, the memories of the civil rights movement, which conservatives tended to oppose, and the memories of the anti-war protests against the police action in Vietnam, and all of the instability or change that these two events brought on, are still very much in the present where the American consciousness, and particularly the conservative American consciousness, is concerned. So it's really, for many reasons, I think, not surprising that the political influence of conservative religion, of fundamentalist religion, tended to increase fairly quickly during the 1970s. Another factor I need to bring up here as well is the Equal Rights Amendment. As for the ERA, that one has a very long history. Women in the U.S. won the right to vote in 1920, and by 1923, the Equal Rights Amendment had been drafted and proposed, guaranteeing protection to women against any sort of sex-based discrimination. And this may come as a surprise, but there is, as of yet, nowhere in the Constitution that actually does that. Well, for a long time, the ERA got nowhere. The first time it actually made it to the floor of the House was, I believe, 1946. But with the rising women's movement in the 1960s, the ERA also picked up steam, and finally, by 1972, was adopted by both Houses of Congress by the two-thirds majority necessary to pass an amendment to the Constitution. The process then is booted to the states, and what has to happen for the amendment to be adopted is for three-quarters of the states of the Union to ratify it. Well, within a year of Congress approving the ERA, 30 states ratified. Now, some of this shouldn't be too surprising. It's the more progressive states that did so. But then, in 1973, a very strong opposition to the ERA emerged. And this came from a couple of places. One a woman by the name of Phyllis Schlafly, who had occupied various posts within the Republican Party, founded an organization called Stop the ERA. Subtlety maybe isn't her strong suit, but she was effective. And she was a very good public speaker. And she was also really good at obfuscation. 
Schlafly, a conservative, was joined in her opposition to the ERA by, among others, the John Birch Society. Now, the John Birch Society, founded in 1958, I believe, was a radically conservative, anti-communist, cold warrior-type, conspiracy-based band of ideologues whose influence reached the high watermark in the 1970s and who since I've just learned, and I should have known this before now, have re-emerged in the 20-teens and whose largely conspiratorial ideologies and policies tend to inform the Trump administration, go figure. And as long as we're on the topic of, of him, it may be worth noting that in 2016, he did see fit to attend Phyllis Schlafly's funeral, but recently, as many of you probably know, he didn't want to be bothered paying his respects to fallen soldiers identifying them basically as suckers. But back to the past. Schlafly appealed to the so-called traditional family values, which basically means this set of arrangements that, from a conservative Republican and conservative Christian point of view in the United States, basically ossified during the 1950s. And any deviation from that seems to be bad. Man breadwinner, woman stay home, family go to church on Sunday, that kind of thing. The assumed norm in this discourse is that the ideal American is white, conservative, Christian, middle-class capitalist. One of the arguments posed against the ERA, for example, was that it would subject women to the draft. Well, yes, it would. And sure, why not? What Schlafly and her ilk tended to leave out was that the draft was already slated to be phased out while they were having these discussions. And of course, what she couldn't know, what they couldn't know, is that since then, many women have, of course, served in combat with distinction. And there's no good reason to prevent a person from serving in the military based on gender. That also is an episode for another day. Another argument po posited by, for example, Schlafly, was that women might be denied the right to child support and other privileges or exemptions. This, of course, is also nonsensical because the laws regulating child support are very clear that whoever has the child is entitled to support. These are actually gender-neutral laws. And, of course, another one that uh, just never goes away, separate toilets might be abolished and horrible, horrible things could result from people being able to pee wherever they want. Oh, the humanity. But tied on to this, there is the religious argument. And that is, this we're talking 1973, the year of Roe v. Wade and the year of the oil crisis. But for our purposes right now, the year of Roe v. Wade, well, the right-wing religious community came out very strongly against Roe v. Wade. And this was part of a general society-wide backlash against feminism, against women's rights. Now, women's rights continue to move forward, but against stronger and stronger opposition. And the issue of who has control of a woman's body, which goes way, way back into Abrahamic religious text, that also is a fun conversation for another day, crystallized around the issue of abortion. And the question of when life starts also crystallized around the issue of abortion. In any case, the conservative religious community of the U.S., mostly in the South but not exclusively, was largely drawn into politics, into political activism, 
around the abortion issue, while at the same time, folks like uh, the good people in the John Birch Society were asserting, as they asserted about every progressive movement, that the women's movement had been infiltrated by communist agitators and was therefore a foreign puppet. They said the same thing about the anti-war movement, they said the same thing about the civil rights movement, and really anything that tends toward the progressive side of anything that tends to be more progressive than, oh, I don't know, Genghis Khan, you will still hear people saying, well, if we go down that road, we're on the slippery slope towards communism. Again, though, what we see is the anti-communist forces on the one hand and the religious right on the other marching pretty much in lockstep to prevent social progress. Well, what happened basically was that by the, by 1979, only 35 states had ratified the ERA of the 38 required. Congress extended the deadline. Originally, it had a seven year deadline for ratification to 1982, but on June 30th of 1982, the ERA expired. Now, the legality of that deadline is a matter of some current debate. Because since then, and most recently, in January of this year, with Virginia signing on, the ERA has actually achieved 38 states. So it has been ratified by the requisite number. It's met the legal requirement. And the imposition of the deadline seems to be at best legally dubious because previous deadlines imposed upon similar discussions have been struck down by the Supreme Court. So this will be a conversation that we'll be having probably after the next election and only if the least right wing of the two right wing candidates actually manages to win. But in any case, we're up to 1979 now and 1979 was also a big year because that was the year a guy by the name of Jerry Falwell founded the Moral Majority. But once again, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's take a step back now to 1976 and the presidential campaign of Jimmy Carter. I don't know what you all think of Jimmy. Personally, I'm a fan. If all Christians were like Jimmy, I wouldn't be making this podcast. But what Carter did, and he was the first presidential candidate to do that in what we might call modern American history, certainly in living memory, was he wore his religion on his sleeve. Carter's a Baptist and very devout. And he made that very clear. This is very different from, uh, say, for example, Kennedy's 1960 presidential campaign, when being a Catholic, he was challenged by Protestant Americans on the question of dividing his loyalty between the U.S. and the Vatican, and to which he replied, his policies will be based on American interests and his religion will have no bearing on his presidency. Again, good answer. I'm very happy with that. And if other Christians were like Kennedy, I would also not be making this podcast. But to return to my previous digression, from which I subsequently digressed, what Carter did was he brought religion into the electoral cycle. And boy, oh boy, did that ever make a mess. Yes, that constituency was key to him getting elected. But what happened afterwards during his term was... Carter is a very progressive man, and many in the religious community, which tends toward the right in the United States, and they're not all right-leaning, I'm not going to paint everybody with the same brush, but many in that constituency that had initially supported him were put off by his progressive policies. 
He supported Roe v. Wade. He supported the ERA. He moved the American embassy in Israel from Jerusalem to Tel Aviv. That's probably the thing that cost him the 1980 election, by the way. I remember the uproar over that. In any case, by the end of Carter's term, the religious constituency that had come in supporting him, a Democrat, had gone over to the Republicans with whom they have remained. That process is a really interesting one. And Jerry Falwell is a key player in it. So, okay, what did Falwell do? Well, Falwell was a Baptist out of Virginia. And unlike the majority of the Baptist congregation at the time, he was of the opinion that Christians should take a much more active role in politics than they were currently taking. So in 1976, he started holding a series of what he called I Love America rallies. And these rallies were geared at raising the awareness of possible political activism within his broad congregation, and also at, I think, testing the water to see what interest there was in going down that road. And it turned out there was a lot of interest, not least probably attributable to the fact that Falwell, since the 1960s, had been a popular televangelist with his program, Old Time Gospel Hour. He was also, of course, the founder of Liberty University, and I use the term university in quotation marks. Actually, I think I have to use the word liberty in quotation marks as well. In any case, by the late 70s, Falwell was already a very, very well-known figure. But he reached sort of a turning point in 1978. So I think I'll pick it up there and move into what will probably be the last segment of this episode. That is, the rise of the popular televangelists of the late 70s and 1980s, and their ongoing association and influence over the Republican Party. So what do we say about old Jerry Falwell? The dude was a piece of work, or at least a piece of some four-letter word. But okay, why am I being so hard on poor old Jerry Poo? And why pick on 1978 in particular? Well, the reason I'm focusing on 1978 is that this isn't a bio piece on Falwell, and I need to leave a whole lot more out than I keep in. But in 1978, the IRS... In accordance with Brown v. Board of Education, which I think I incorrectly identified as being a 1955 decision, it was actually 1954, but onward, in 1978, the IRS revoked the tax-exempt status of all-white Christian schools. And this infuriated poor Jerry. Because where are those nice, white, conservative Christians going to learn their parochial, conservative, anti-science, faith, based, homophobic, racist, sexist, Christian imperialist values, if not in an all-white Christian school. And this right here, this moment of absolute common cause, with the most backward-looking of political and religious conservatives, is what really, in that historical moment, crystallized the religious right as a political force. That was essentially... I think, the moment of metastasis, where the tumor of far-right-wing Christian conservatism in American politics became a full-blown cancer. For example, uh, in 1976, Ford's presidential campaign adopted what they called a pro-life stance. 
most of the party was actually not pro-life at the time, only about 40% of them were, but they could see the pragmatic value of taking that stance against a progressive such as Carter, who supported women's rights and women's bodily autonomy. Well, flash forward ahead a couple of years to the 1978 midterms, with religious conservatives increasingly turning toward the Republican Party, a number of Senate candidates who ran on anti-choice platforms won their seats. And when we move forward again to 1980 and the presidential runoff between Carter and Reagan, the Republican platform took an officially anti-abortion stance and even began calling for what they called a human life amendment to the Constitution, which would ban abortion completely, while at the same time they opposed the ERA, because I guess a fetus is more of a person than a woman. But 1980 was a big year for the religious right. Now remember, in 1978, there had been this joining of forces over, over the revocation of tax-free status on segregated white Christian schools. And, and evangelical Christians, for the most part, had opposed desegregation and had opposed civil rights from the beginning. But if we skip forward to 1980 and that presidential campaign, the first presidential campaign that I actually have uh, more than just scattered fragmentary memories of, we see the religious right wholeheartedly endorsing the Reagan campaign. Reagan, of course, was both a fiscal and a cultural conservative. And he was very tough on communism. All of these things appealed to the religious right. And when I say he was tough on communism, he was actually, in the 1940s, an FBI snitch. He ratted out fellow actors for suspected communist activity within the Screen Actors Guild. His code name with the FBI was T-10. He is known to have given the FBI the names of fellow actors whom he believed were communist. This, of course, in the early years of the Cold War leading up to the McCarthy era. That's just the kind of guy he was. But onward. So in 1980, that relationship, which had really been growing during the Carter presidency, was almost, you could say, formally cemented during a speech that Reagan gave in front of a crowd of about 15,000 conservative Christians, including Pat Robertson and, of course, Jerry Falwell. And what Reagan said there has been compared basically to wedding vows, has been compared to the moment of the marriage between the Republican Party and, and the religious right. And this is what he said. Religious America is awakening, perhaps just in time for our country's sake, if we believe God has blessed America with liberty, then we have not just a right to vote, but a duty to vote. We have not just freedom to work in campaigns and run for office and comment on public affairs. We have a responsibility to do so. If you do not speak your mind and cast your ballot, then who will speak and work for the ideals we cherish? Who will vote to protect the American family and respect its interests in the formulation of public policy? I know you can't endorse me, because this is a nonpartisan crowd, but I... I want you to know that I endorse you and what you are doing. So what were they doing? Well, as I said, the evangelical Christians in the United States had opposed civil rights and opposed desegregation. Now, the desegregation issue by this point was effectively dead. So they needed another horse to hitch their wagons to. And they had, since the mid-70s at least, adopted the anti-choice position. So they were anti-civil rights, pro-segregation, anti-choice, 
Well, what else were they doing? What else did they want? Well, Falwell was an avid campaigner for prayer in school. And I remember this pretty well. I mean, I grew up with prayer in school. I didn't take it all that seriously, of course, but I grew up with it. In fact, our, our principal, whom I remember very fondly, he was a lovely man, uh, Mr. Palaszczuk, in my high school, Dunbarton High School in Pickering, Ontario. Mr. Palaszczuk used to read the Lord's Prayer every morning after the National Anthem, but he never read the same version of the prayer two days in a row. So we all took to calling him the Pope because, of course, he had assumed the authority to change the prayer. Yes, he was working with different translations, but hey, it was fun. But as I was saying, popular issues for the religious right, in addition to the anti-choice position, were the so-called traditional family values, opposition to the ERA, opposition to strategic arms limitation talks, that is the SALT treaties, and really rabid opposition to homosexuality, that is to the social acceptance, even to the legal acceptance of physical acts of homosexuality, which in Leviticus do carry the death penalty. And their anti-choice stance even went so far as to seek to deny women the right to an abortion in the case of rape. And this is the social wave that began back in the 70s and grew gradually throughout the 80s and really dominated social discourse. And here, I, I can stop speaking from sources and just speak from memory. People were scared of the devil, 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 devil. As if that character were a real thing and could actually possess people. As if <laughs> as if heavy metal music were really satanic, and if Dungeons and Dragons was the devil's game. It was a fun time. There was lots to laugh at. But looking at where that wave has led over the last few decades, with the gradual wearing down of the wall between church and state, and, and the gradual ascent of religious as opposed to science or data-driven discourse at the level of government and policy. I'm not laughing now. And I can honestly say that I do believe Jerry Falwell left the world a better place the moment he left it in 2007. He was a key force in driving the social discourse of the United States further to the right and further away from science, from, from actual reality, at a time when reality and science were and are so desperately needed. For example, regarding global warming, Falwell's position was, and I quote, I believe that global warming is a myth, and so, therefore, I have no conscience problems at all, and I'm going to buy a suburban next time. Or, despite, really, by this point, unambiguous data, it's God's planet, and he's taking care of it. And I don't believe that anything we can do will raise or lower the temperature one point. Well, okay, that's nice. It's great if you can believe whatever you want divorced from reality because your beliefs are what they are. That's, um, we have people who can help you with that. And I realize I'm rambling a bit. I also know I'm very late getting this episode out. So I think I'm just going to let myself ramble and then try to edit it down into something coherent because I need to move on to the next episode. And maybe I should have devoted longer to, uh, to, to Falwell and this, this whole time period. 
I think I'll have to come back to it. But in terms of other things that Falwell said, just to give you a sense of, of, of what his positions were and the kind of policies that he did endorse, consider his words looking forward to the fruition of, of the Christian right movement. I hope to live to see the day when, as in the early days of our country, we won't have any public schools. The churches will have taken them over again, and Christians will be running them. What a happy day that will be. That is, Falwell was opposed to public education. He thought the church should be in charge of education. And that's the world that the Trump administration is, of course, trying to create through, quote, education, unquote, Secretary Betsy DeVos, who is unabashedly undermining secular education. Or regarding his general impression of, of human beings. Again, this is Jerry. If you're not a born-again Christian, you're a failure as a human being. Not just Christian, born again. All those other Christians are doing it wrong, apparently. And regarding homosexuality, and again, this is Jerry. At the height of the AIDS pandemic, AIDS is not just God's punishment for homosexuals. It's God's punishment for the society that tolerates homosexuals. Now, if you want to get some sense of what Falwell meant by what not tolerating homosexuals looked like, consider Leviticus chapter 20, verse 13. If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall be put to death. Their blood is upon them. Well, just last year, there was in Orlando, of all places, on Easter weekend, a Make America Straight Again conference in which speakers endorsed exactly that passage and the literal reading of it. Because, of course, a key stance of fundamentalist Christianity is biblical inerrancy. That is, the Bible is right, perfectly right, at all times and in all things. Or, as Falwell puts it, the Bible is the inerrant word of the living God. It is absolutely infallible, without error in all manners pertaining to faith and practice, as well as in areas such as geography, science, history, etc. So this is an unambiguous statement that passages such as the one I just read you are to be taken literally, and will be taken literally, if society goes down the route that Falwell wanted it to take. But... If I want to pick a Falwell quotation to move toward wrapping up on, I think I'll pick his most famous one, his response to the 9-11 terrorist attacks. Listen to the logic, or what passes for such, in the following words. The abortionists have got to bear some of the burden for the attacks of September 11th, because God will not be mocked. And when we destroy 40 million little innocent babies, we make God mad. I really believe that the pagans and the abortionists and the feminists and the gays and the lesbians who are actively trying to make that an alternative lifestyle, the ACLU, People for the American Way, all of them who have tried to secularize America, I point the finger in their face and say, you helped this happen. This for many years was the prominent voice of the American religious right. Perhaps not everyone went as far as him or would, but he was one of their major public faces. And hey, if you want to look for alternatives, you're welcome to turn your attention to Pat Robertson if you want, or to Jim Baker, or to Randall Terry, or to any list of other hateful, bigoted, sexist homophobes that may strike your fancy. Now, of course, you may ask, but was he a good Christian? 
I don't know. <laughs> I really don't know because I've read the Bible and I'm, I'm familiar with lots of things that support what he says. And I'm also familiar with how hard apologists have to work to make the nasty parts of that book go away, which of course is the position you put yourself in immediately if you approach any book with the a priori conviction that whatever it says, it must be good, it must be right, and it must be true. That is, if you approach it from a fundamentalist position. And that is one of the most serious problems with fundamentalism, be it religious fundamentalism or political fundamentalism. It demands that one do violence to one's own intellect in order to justify the given positions. And at the individual level, that violence is tragic. The effect of that violence is tragic. It truncates one's very humanity. But in the aggregate, those truncated humans become something truly horrifying. But in any case, by the end of the 1980s, the moral majority had dissolved, having basically, in Falwell's own words, achieved its purpose and brought Christian conservatism into the political mainstream and into the bosom of, of the Republican Party, replacing, I suppose, what once might have been a heart. And, uh, and well, now his son is in the public spotlight for, uh, <laughs> for watching his wife fuck the pool boy while he whacked off in the corner. Um, I think that is just the perfect image, just the perfect image of of the difference between what the Christian right says and what the Christian right does. And if you don't believe me, ask Ted Haggard. In any case, by the end of the Cold War, the religious right had become so firmly entrenched in American political discourse that they were effectively, and have been for a long time, the dominant voice, or at least one of the dominant voices. But it doesn't end there, because one thing I haven't brought up yet is the rise of a particular religious political ideology called dominionism or dominion theology or reconstruction theology. It goes by all, all of these names, which came about as well in the 1970s and which is aimed not just at domination of the American political landscape, but domination period. Now, ideologically, Falwell was not too far away from these folks, so we'll probably hear more from him next time. For now, though, I'm going to call it a day, and next time I'll wrap up this series of episodes with a discussion of Dominion theology and the degree to which it's become embedded in American politics. I should also say that after the next episode, I'll be changing the format of the podcast. It's been a month since I released a new episode, and the reason, one of the reasons I'm so far behind is that with classes resuming in September, and with the type of teaching that we are doing on account of COVID-19 protocols requiring so much more of a time commitment on the part of faculty, I simply haven't had the time to devote to the podcast that it really requires. So after the next episode, which will be probably about the same length as this one, I'll be cutting down to half-hour episodes. This is something I think I can manage on something like a weekly schedule. Also, I've been gradually converting the back catalog of episodes into MP4s for YouTube, which has involved working up a visual motif that also is quite time-consuming. I'll be launching the first three this Sunday, the 13th, so if you're interested in just seeing what's going on visually, my plan now with that one is to release the back catalog playing catch-up with the current releases sufficiently quickly to be caught up 
by the November election, and then to release the YouTube version within a few days of the podcast. So anyways, if, if you're curious to see what I've been up to, and if you like weird photography, check out the Eclectic Humanist YouTube channel. The first episode, the introduction to the series, premieres on September 13th, Sunday evening, at 8 o'clock Atlantic Time, 7 o'clock Eastern. The second episode, Manchius in Minneapolis, will premiere at 8.30, so 7.30 Eastern. And the third episode on moral charisma, Jacinda Ardern and Donald Trump, will premiere at 9.30 Atlantic, 8.30 Eastern. So if you have friends that don't do podcasts but do do YouTube, have them check out the premiere. In the meantime, as always, you can get a hold of me at eclectic.humanist at gmail.com or the Eclectic Humanist Facebook page or, of course, at EC Humanist on Twitter. Thank you for listening. I'm sorry for the delay in this episode, and I hope it hasn't been too disjointed for you. But until next time, do, please, be kind to each other. Mm -hmm.